on. I'm on three seats. <laughs> Look, there goes the game. You're listening to Ithaca Now. WICB's weekly news program focused on stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Antonio Fermi, and thanks for joining us today. Tonight, the city of Ithaca mourns the loss of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a Cornell alumni who touched this town many years ago before she came to the high position she held in the Supreme Court. Also, colleges have now reopened, so what's that? But up first, Let's hear what's going on in the Ithaca area with our community beat. The Ithaca City School District, or ICSD, recently announced plans to go back in person starting on October 5th. Pre-kindergarten through fifth grade, will go fully in person, but due to the school guidelines set in place by Governor Cuomo, middle and high school students will be in a hybrid style return in person for two days and virtual for the remaining three. All students will have the option of going hybrid or continuing virtual education through the remainder of the year. New York Senator Schumer and Gillibrand announced funding for Ithaca Waterfront. In the press release, lawmakers stated that near $1.5 million in funding will be spent to improve the infrastructure and provide traffic relief near Route 13. Ithaca plans to receive $1.4 million from the Better Utilizing Investments to Leverage Development, or the BUILD grant program created by President Trump. The Cayuga Revitalization Program plans to redesign a strip of Route 13, giving it more pedestrian crossings and adding an extension to 5th Street to pave another route to the waterfront. An Ithaca man was arrested multiple times Thursday, according to the police department. In a statement released, Ithaca police stated that the man was acting disorderly and had reportedly stolen from a business. He was arraigned and released on his own cognizance. Cornell University plans to distribute $8.5 million in aid for students who were heavily impacted by COVID-19. The majority of these funds came from the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security, or CARES Act, which gave out aid to universities in late March. Financial aid will range from $500 to $2,000, depending on the severity of their situation, and will be given to about 75% of undergraduate students. For WICB News, I'm Rebecca. Cornell University has lowered its alert back to green, indicating that their COVID numbers have decreased. The university, which had moved its alert to a yellow due to the surge in numbers, announced that their positive case numbers have decreased. Even though the alert level has been decreased, the university added that they will be keeping up with their strict guidelines. For Rebecca Legato, I'm Celine Stash, WICB News. This Friday night, our station and everyone else has learned of the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and we wanted to explore her legacy and show what she meant to so many people, especially women, both here and across the country. I was driving in my car, and as I stopped, I pulled out my phone and saw that in our new staff Slack account, 
another reporter, Michael Memes, let us know what happened. And it just kind of exploded. Like, in all the time I've been news director so far, over the last couple of months, nothing really blew up our discussion channel like the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She died at 87 on September 18th from complications of cancer. Right away, there was so much outpouring of support for the late Justice Ginsburg, a Cornell graduate. Governor Cuomo announced a statue will be built of her in her hometown of Brooklyn. And on social media, it was all over. I couldn't count the amount of Instagram stories posted outpouring admiration for her, especially among women. You know, I think it's fascinating. Michael Dorff, constitutional law professor at Cornell. I, you know, part of what enabled her to take off as an internet celebrity is that she seemed amused by the whole thing. In the 2010s, she gained an almost cult-like following among young people, younger women in particular, gaining the reputation of the notorious RBG for her heated dissents, making her the cultural hero, icon, whatever you want to call her, that she was at the time of her death. A public figure in her 80s who was not coming out of a pop culture background embrace the pop celebrity. I think that uh, young people reacted positively to that. So I see that in my students. I also see that in my, my teenage daughters who were you know, terribly upset, understandably, by her passing uh, because they saw her as a real role model, not just as a pioneer who sort of laid the groundwork for you know, subsequent generations, but a current role, role model. And I think that's extraordinary. She even got her own movie on the basis of sex based on her life and early cases. Cornell even said that it could be argued that she was the most beloved justice in history. According to the university, when she showed up in a video conference at an alumni reunion event, right when the name Ruth Bader Ginsburg lit the screen, younger Cornell reunion classes just started chanting, RBG, RBG, RBG. Um, so the Women's Law Coalition generally, um, and all of its individual members, were extremely saddened by the passing of Justice Ginsburg last night. That's Natalie Greenfield of the Cornell Women's Law Coalition, a student at Cornell Law School. A lot of us were, were online speaking to each other and um, really relying on our community when it happened. Um, because Justice Ginsburg, uh, Justice Ginsburg and her jurisprudence means an awful lot to, and has meant an awful lot to women, but especially to women law students as well, the way we studied um, the decisions that she uh, made and her dissents as well, and the way she really advanced women's equality. So um, everyone was extremely sad last night and, and quite anxious about the future as well. And it was even more amplified because now, over half a century ago, she was a student there, graduated in 1954 from Cornell's College of Arts and Sciences, majoring in government for her undergrad way before she was the second female justice nominated to the Supreme Court by President Clinton. At Cornell, they held a candlelight vigil the day after she passed. In Cornell Law School, those we spoke to were struck by her loss. So I think, I think for me, it, it's heartbreaking because there are just so few women in general in the legal field that really represent things that I feel are right and just. Um, and to have her pass at such a critical moment in our democracy is just really, really unfortunate. That's Faith Cody of the Cornell Women of Color Collective, also a law student at Cornell. I mean, obviously we have so few women to look up to. So to have someone like Justice Ginsburg, who is an icon and who is so capable of, you know, just standing up for what she believed in and 
and expressing her opinions. It's just been so encouraging to know that, like, women such as herself can, you know, make that stand and still be respected and still receive such consideration and such, like, honor, you know what I mean? Even, even though she is, you know, a white woman, I think the steps we make are small and collective. So it's, it's empowering and, and just so sad to know that we've lost someone who has been known to speak for us as we continue to build our representation on the court. Cornell President Martha Pollack said that Justice Ginsburg was a true hero and a giant of American jurisprudence, and also a relentless champion of equity, always fighting for what was right. Yes, I think it felt very poignant um, knowing that Justice Ginsburg was at Cornell um, as an undergraduate, not at the law school, yeah. um, but had come back to, to to Cornell and had visited the law school and people were sharing archival photos of her in the moot courtroom at the law school um, and memories, uh, you know, from the archives of, of when she did visit. And I think it felt especially um, poignant, yes, that, to know that an alum... Um, who had gone on to do such great things and had such a great impact, um, had passed away. To know that she did spend some of her time here and to know that she, you know, was able to form some of her formative thoughts here is really encouraging for us to know that we're at a, a good institution that encourages us to think for ourselves. You know what I mean? Like, not every institution allows students to form their own opinion. So it's good to know that, like, the people that have come before us have really been have been able to think for themselves. I think that's been really encouraging for us. While she was here in Ithaca, she started to develop into what she would become later in life, even meeting her husband, citing Cornell professors Robert Cushman, professor of government, and Vladimir Nabokov, then professor of European literature in her public talks, as influential to her. You can even read a letter to the editor in the Cornell Daily Sun on the dangers of warrantless wiretapping published all the way back in 1953. Back then, apparently she had the nickname of Kiki. I was shocked and also devastated at the news. Um, that sort of passed fairly quickly when I realized that this was going to have such a huge impact, uh, especially in politics right now. Um, Veronica Fox, assistant district attorney in Tompkins County. But having her on the Supreme Court for me was was a inspiration, I guess you could say, if for lack of a better word. It's it was a a sense of okay, if we have not only you know if we have at least two women on the Supreme Court, and one of them is this uh, very vocal, strong, um, liberal voice then there's still hope. So I guess maybe what I'm looking for in terms of a word is is her being on the Supreme Court uh, as a Supreme Court justice has given me personally hope. One only needs to look across the wide swath of individuals quoting her, paying homage to her, and mourning her passing to recognize that she and her passion for justice crossed boundaries to reach a great many people. Anne-Marie Adams, professor at Ithaca College. Paving the way for countless numbers of women in law, her impact on our legal system and our society is immeasurable. Her legacy will never fade. She is an important part of our nation's rich history of struggle and triumph. To me personally, she was an inspiration, personally because of her you know, tremendous work ethic, 
her courage in facing very serious health issues, both initially with her husband Marty and and repeatedly with herself, and uh, never engaging in any kind of self-pity, but just sort of rolling up her sleeves and doing her work. I also always found her opinions uh, extremely honest. Before coming to Cornell, Professor Dorff also taught at Columbia, where Justice Ginsburg earned her law degree coming there from Harvard. Uh, so I think she is, for me and I hope for my students, a model of you know judicial rectitude. But I don't mean that in a persnickety way, or she wasn't excessively proper or anything like that. She, she was who she was, and she called the cases as she saw them. Another thing that I think is not commonly known is just how personally kind she was. He even got to meet her a few times. Yeah, I mean, I, I mostly met her in formal settings. She was, she was very approachable. You ask her a question, she would answer it. If she felt she couldn't answer it, she would say why. She was known as a powerhouse for getting equal rights for citizens, working at the ACLU, co-founding the Women's Rights Project, famously expanding women's rights through cases which appeared discriminatory towards men, working to establish a constitutional precedent for equality under the law, since there was a lack of an equal rights amendment, which of course eventually did happen through court decisions that cited the Equal Protection Clause under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, and she also argued so many cases to the end of women's legal equality. But it goes deeper than that, though. Conventional wisdom says that the way that she and the ACLU attacked gender inequality was by bringing cases in which men were the plaintiffs and the sex line in the law nominally disfavored men, but was really part of a broader system that was disadvantaging everybody on the basis of sex. And according to this conventional narrative, this was very clever for two reasons. One, because it would appeal to the almost exclusively male judiciary at the time. And second, because it was a way of underscoring that men as well as women have an interest in sex equality. And I, I for many years, uh, accepted that uh, conventional wisdom. Then Professor Dorff actually got the opportunity to ask her about it. But I was on a panel with Justice Ginsburg some years ago in which, during the course of my remarks, I referred to it to praise it, that, that strategy. And she corrected me. She said, uh, no, Michael, you know, we, people say that. And we did have cases in which men were plaintiffs, but mostly we had cases in which women were plaintiffs. It just happened that the, some of the most famous cases to reach the Supreme Court involved male plaintiffs. Um, now, I think she was being modest. I do think there was an element of what I've described as the conventional wisdom in the litigation strategy she pursued. Uh, but I also think that it would be a mistake to say that she mostly was attacking discrimination against men as a way of making a point. She was she was mostly offended by conventional sex discrimination, and that's what she attacked, and that's where, where I think her biggest lasting legacy is. But now with her passing, many are worrying that what she fought for may now come again into question depending on who takes her seat. And so, you know, my, my sort of reaction is that this is a tragedy, um, not only because we're losing um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the second Supreme Court female uh, Supreme Court justice, on our Supreme Court, we're losing her voice in, in Supreme Court decisions, but it's also um, sort of opening the door to a pretty big political um, 
battle over the next few months. There is a certain amount of anxiety about what this means for the future of some really fundamental rights and some really sacred rights that women and um, minorities and people of colour in the country have come to rely on. And a certain anxiety as to what's going to happen now, who's going to be a replacement, will that process be rushed through the Senate before the election, um, and what the Justice Ginsburg's replacement might mean for the future of um, some some really core rights and, and human dignity in this country, specifically with respect to reproductive rights, um, immigration policy, um, all kinds of different fields on which Justice Ginsburg has had a really big impact, LGBT equality, for example, as well. So there's a certain amount of worry as to what's going to come next. Um, I think I'm at a loss for words. It's kind of hard to say. You don't know, you know what the Trump administration is going to do with this, per se. Like, they obviously said they're going to replace her, but, you know, who knows? You know, who knows at this critical moment? My, as, as a political person, and obviously, as you said, a future attorney, my, my kind of biggest gripe is a lack of commitment. You know what I mean? It's, in 2016, Senate Republicans established a precedent that Supreme Court nominees would not be confirmed in an election year. Now, though, President Trump and Mitch McConnell have vowed to put a female justice in Ginsburg's place. And this possibility leaves a lot of people worried not only about the judicial decisions that can be affected, but also the political consequences for whatever decision they make. But with this rushed and intense political scenario, it could open some doors that some might not want to see. Right. If we imagine that Biden wins the election and the Democrats either take this, take over the Senate or take over enough of it that they would, you know, uh, have a blocking majority uh, or blocking minority when uh, the uh, new president took office, but they confirm someone during lame duck session. Nonetheless, uh, I think in that scenario, that would very much raise the stakes and probably bring over some Democrats who would otherwise be reluctant to consider such extreme measures as court packing. Um, and that's sort of the least of our worries, because I think that would be a you know, further uh, impact of polarization. So I, so I do think that, that a confirmation in a lame duck session after an election in which the Republicans lose the presidency and the Senate majority would have potentially disastrous consequences for the court long term. But I don't think we're there yet. And while, of course, she wasn't perfect, and no one is, I'm sure that each listener will find cases she argued with which they disagreed. But what she represented, this small woman having such a big role in the march for equality for so many people, cannot be overstated. Yeah, so I would I would urge uh, listeners, if they want to read one thing by Justice Ginsburg, uh, read her 1996 majority opinion in a case called United States Against Virginia, which is a case that struck down the sex line that Virginia Military Institute, VMI, had. VMI did not admit women. Uh, and they set up a, uh, what they called a leadership institute as an alternative for women. And the case went to the Supreme Court. The court, in an opinion by Justice Ginsburg, said this was a denial of equal protection. And I think in, in that opinion, you can see the culmination of her work as a lawyer and her vision uh, for uh, gender equality. And as time goes on, the notorious RBG 
will continue to have her impact, both in the law and in the hearts and minds of those who practice it. I think that uh, being a woman in the legal profession, it is very male-dominant. I mean, her story is remarkable, uh, but the fact of the matter is that like, even being in a field practicing criminal law, for example, um, there are very few women to practice in criminal law. And when I started to practice in Ithaca, um, I was practicing a lot of criminal defense. I was a defense attorney. And there were probably two other women that I knew that practiced in Tompkins County in criminal defense. And so I can understand personally, you know, what that feels like, uh, how strange it is, the sorts of things that come up um, being in a male-dominant field, and also just how much hard, in my opinion, how much harder you have to work to get to certain places uh, in life in the legal field. Um, So, again not only just hope in terms of politics, but also like inspiration and a reason to continue to move forward and continue to believe in myself. While my reaction to this is sadness and loss, that the way that we turn this around and the way that we honor her legacy is to use our voice now, exercise our right to vote, and take responsibility for our part in who sits in Congress and who sits in the Oval Office. I was 55 when I began a Master's of Legal Studies at Washington University and St. Louis School of Law. And what I gleaned then, and what I continue to understand, is that citizens' rights must remain at the heart of what governs our hearts and minds. And this is who Ruth Bader Ginsburg is to me. Her court opinions are notable, her personal triumphs are remarkable, but it's what she gave us to reflect on and to continue to act on that makes the greatest difference pushing forward. I was reflecting a lot last night on what um, Justice Ginsburg's path really means to me as someone about to graduate and go into the legal profession. And I think um, we're speaking about someone who was a real giant. She was an extraordinary woman and a scholar and a a really outstanding advocate for women's rights. And um, I think it's important for a lot of us to take hope in that and to find um, courage and motivation to go forward and go out into this profession, into the legal profession that is still incredibly male-dominated and know that someone worked so hard and so tirelessly for women to have a seat at the table um, and that we all benefit from that now. Um, and, and I think that's really motivational and we've, I personally feel anyway that we've got to take comfort in that and, and let that propel us forward. For WICB News, I'm Jay Bradley. You're listening to Ithaca Now on 92 WICB. I'm your host, Antonio Fermi. Schools opening again isn't on the horizon anymore. For some universities and colleges, they've already been open for almost a month now. We've seen success stories, and we've seen failures as well. WICB correspondents Madeline Lorraine, Rebecca Legato, and Kyle DeSantis look into what's going on in these places, and what do people think now that they're in it? Colleges are open in New York State. How is it going so far? I wanted to look at colleges and universities in our region to get an understanding of how local communities are affected and how students are faring themselves. 
While many universities across the country chose to hold classes online this semester, schools in New York State were in a unique position to craft their reopening plans. As the number of viral infections dropped and stayed low starting in June, both Cornell University and Ithaca College here in Tompkins County planned to open to students in person. Although only Cornell has reopened here in Ithaca, other schools across the state have too. I worked with WICB reporters Beck Legato and Kyle DeSantis to find out how reopening plans are playing out at Cornell, SUNY Binghamton, and SUNY Oneonta. Beck, what did you find? Over the summer, Cornell University laid out plans to return to campus in a hybrid style until Thanksgiving. After that, all students will have finals held online. This plan included things like daily health check-ins for those visiting campus and extensive testing and contact tracing. In recent weeks, Cornell performed over 5,000 tests per day. Students who still have the chance to learn on campus are having trouble gaining that college experience. Freshmen especially struggle to build bonds and relationships that came easily before COVID-19 and social distancing restrictions. I spoke with Ashley Zhang, a freshman at Cornell University. She is currently majoring in engineering and taking classes both online and in person. When I asked Ashley about her personal experience so far, she said, quote, While it's been a lot harder to meet people and make friends, it has also created a litmus test for people I do want to befriend who care about public health and helped me bond more with my roommate. The experience she has had with friends so far are also mirrored in the school's execution of their reopening plan, reflecting that, quote, Cornell University is more well thought out and executed than most, but still insufficient. Even though Cornell University's model and plan were watertight on paper, a significant lack of enforcement of said plan, especially among students, makes it very risky and leaves too many students to self-police. About an hour southeast from Cornell, SUNY Binghamton has also brought back students onto its campus. I got the chance to speak with Nick Haywood, an undeclared freshman, about what it was like moving in. Here's what he had to say. For one, the uh, move-in day spread out over three, four days for freshmen alone. So watching everyone come in was a very interesting process, I think, rather than just having everyone come in at once. And I think it was a great way, especially with the whole pandemic going on, considering most freshmen are required to live on campus. However, not everything about the move-in day was positive. Nick continued about the impact of the multiple move-in dates. Uh, It definitely threw up barriers between people because some people move in on the first day like me. Some people moved in much later like my roommate. And... It's a little tough to get situated, especially when you're in a new place and if people have already settled in. Keeping with our focus on central New York, I also got to speak with Aiden Straley, a criminal justice major at SUNY Oneonta. While he was not able to talk over the phone about the situation, he did answer my questions via text. Aiden replied that the coronavirus has, quote, definitely changed the college experience. We weren't allowed to go into other halls, meaning we couldn't make as many friends. And then, when the quarantine happened, we weren't allowed into other people's dorms, even if you lived in the same hall. Although Oneonta has currently shifted to fully remote learning for the rest of the fall semester, Aiden also mentioned, quote, It was terrible, 
but we made the most out of it. While students' focus is drawn to concerns over their school reopenings, professors working in Ithaca are seeing all sides of the reopenings, from the impact on local communities to the way classes are taught and information is shared. I got the chance to speak with Dr. Chris Holmes, Associate Professor and Chair of the Writing Department at Ithaca College. He is also co-chair of the New Voices Literary Festival and heads On the Verge Players at Ithaca College. The college denounced on August 18th that it would hold classes entirely online for the fall 2020 semester, only inviting a select number of students to return to campus for in-person classes. I spoke with Chris to get a look at his experiences, both before the reopenings in Ithaca and as the school year got off to a start. I have, I guess, two thoughts on it. And one is, you know, that I, I both wanted to, you know, hope for the best in terms of students maybe being able to return. And I knew Cornell looked like it was heading towards face-to-face -face return, but I also, felt quite kind of paranoid and fearful about what it would mean to our smallish city to have students coming from all over the place and places that have much higher percentage of viral cases and hospitalizations and to see what that might do to the city. And, and that remains an unknown at this point. When asked about how Cornell's reopening changed his family's life, Chris says very little. With two kids at home and a partner who works as a doctor in Binghamton, Chris says his family has been cautious since the springtime. And while mask wearing and social distancing becomes commonplace, the lack of social time doesn't. But we have been very, um, it, it's been a strange and many ways kind of lonely time because we've been abstracted and distanced from our friends and family with you know, small exceptions of the summer giving us the opportunity to see people outside and at a distance. But otherwise, I mean, we haven't, we literally haven't had anyone in our house since March. So it's that Cornell hasn't changed that, um, but it has made us more aware of, that what we're doing needs to persist and that we need to continue to be really vigilant. Just as students in universities across the state are feeling the weight of community building at a distance, Chris knows his students at Ithaca College are struggling just the same. Just there's almost no substitute for are the ways in which in a face-to-face -face classroom, students could just come up to me after class and approach me about any topic. And sometimes that topic is directly class related. Sometimes it's just a kind of social hello or to tell me about something that they're doing that they're really excited about. And sometimes it's to reveal that they're having real problems um, with some aspect of their life in college. And it's then an opportunity for me to help find them services that can help with that. And those largely don't happen. And maybe they will happen using Slack as that technology becomes easier and more informal. But the loss of that kind of socialization with students is, is dramatic, and there's no replacing it. Overall, Chris says his department was well prepared for the transition to online learning this fall. And although school is only a few weeks in, has good news to report about his students' success. 
they are engaging really in a kind of free form way where we sort of, you know, we were doing a little bit of the blue hand raising thing, but the classes are of a size where it's <laughs> okay for me to have them just jump in or raise their physical hand. And that's been working really, really well. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty thrilled about that. And then, um, you know, from my perspective, I feel like the learning we're doing and talking about our readings and debating topics is, you know, if not as good, then nearly as good as what would happen in the classroom. And that has almost everything to do with this crop of students who are, are just really impressive. When asked what he would like his community to know, he says that a screen can't separate Ithaca College students from their professor's care. You know, I just would say, end by saying that, you know, the professors at Ithaca College love their students. They really adore them and they miss them terribly uh, and miss the opportunities that they had to see them outside of class. But at the same time, they are continuing to love teaching them even in this kind of odd remote form. And so that students who are kind of making their way through this, you know, tangled web of new kinds of learning can be assured that their professors will will be there for them to help them do that and and to be looking forward to a future where they have the kind of education that we would most want to be having with our students. For WICB News, I'm Madeline Lorene. I'm Beck Legato. And I'm Kyle DeSantis. And that's all for this edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org. And if you'd like to listen to our past shows, follow WICB on SoundCloud and subscribe to Ithaca Now to hear the show anywhere, anytime. Also, subscribe to the latest to hear our daily newscasts every weekday. Just search WICB News Presents on your favorite podcast app. For more updates throughout the week, follow WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This show wouldn't happen without the support from Manager of Television and Radio Operations, Jeremy Menard, WICB Stations Manager, Sam Ives, Programming Director, Lou Barron, News Director, Jade Bradley, News Managing Director Celine Tier, Programming Director Hamadri Saith, and all of our correspondents. Thank you. All of the music from our show's intro and outro come from Dr. Dundiff of Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback, story ideas, or just want to say hi? Feel free to reach out by emailing news at WICB.org. We will be back with a full episode of Ithaca Now at 7 p.m. next Sunday, so make sure to tune in. I'm Antonio Fermi. And thank you for listening to Ithaca Now on WICB.